Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about pediatric cancer survivorship with Dr. Nina Caden Lodick. Dr. Caden Lodick is the medical director of the HEROES program and an associate professor of pediatrics and hematology oncology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. Nina, maybe we can start off by you laying some of the groundwork. I mean, when we think about pediatric cancers or cancers occurring in children, uniformly, um, what what is the first emotion that strikes is heartbreak. But tell us a little bit more about how many kids every year get cancer and the different kinds of cancers that they get. So there are about 10,000 kids in the country that get diagnosed with cancer And the great news is that the vast majority will be long-term survivors cured for good. So we have cure rates uh, among all comers of about 85%. And um, about one-third of the cancers are leukemia lymphomas. Another 25% are brain tumors. And then the rest are a a wide variety of, of different cancers. But the good news is for most cancers, we have some very effective therapies and some really exciting ones coming down, coming down the pike. So, you know, I I can only imagine what it must be like um, to hear the words "your child has cancer." Um, but but let's take a step even back from that. How is it that these cancers are diagnosed? Because you know, most parents are not anticipating that their child is going to get cancer. This isn't something that, you know, we get screening tests for. So how do we look at that? And and how is it that cancer is diagnosed? So it is very, very rare. And so I would not want um, you know, most most families to, to worry about this as something that they have to actively look for. It really does uh, present in ways are, that show that the child is, has something going on that's very different from what would be expected. So what is common, um, what can commonly happen are fevers that last longer than five days, significant weight loss that's more than 10% of the child's weight or not growing, um, having night sweats or being um, having drenching, sweaty clothes in the middle of the night, not just feeling warm with a little pers- perspiration, and having um, lumps and bumps that that grow. Um, uh, it's it's really normal for kids to have lymph nodes that you can feel, but they tend to kind of go up and down. They don't um, just keep on getting bigger. So these are things that are very unusual and would stand out to a pediatrician or to a parent as just not being right. And that's what usually gets um, medical attention that leads to the tests that make the diagnosis. Yeah. 
So I guess, you know, the, the one thing is that while these are very rare, when, when something just doesn't seem right with your child over a prolonged period of time, you really ought to get it checked out. And so, um, and so when you present to your pediatrician with, um, your child who, who may have some of these symptoms, how is that generally worked up? One would imagine that pediatricians too are thinking, you know, common things being common, um, you know, is this a flu? Is this a cold? Um, how is it that, you know, things are worked up where pediatricians clue into the fact that this is unusual and and what further workup is needed so i i will say pediatricians are brilliant because they see thousands of of children they have a gut feeling when something doesn't feel right and um and and i totally um uh agree with you that if if a parent feels like something's not right to go to the pediatrician and, and have that evaluated and so on um, some of these are the questions that I I just mentioned to you that are asked and if any of those are positive with any of those things going on that would be a red flag and then the pediatrician does a really close exam and and checks for the size of lymph nodes in the neck and under the arms uh, and listens to the lungs and feels the belly very uh, carefully for organ enlargement or any masses um, and also feels any other body parts that are affected. So if anything doesn't feel right, so it feels firmer or larger or doesn't move, um, that would be a, a red flag. And then we get a phone call in pediatric oncology and um, we we're available 24-7 to our community pediatricians, and we just talk it over. And sometimes um, we have some other signs or hints that help us know it's something that's really benign and not worrisome, that it sounds more like mono, or we lend kind of our experience to kind of temper what 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 would um, be less worrisome or something characteristic of an unusual manifestation of a common infection or whether it indicates that there could be um, something totally different going on, like uh, arthritis or another joint problem. But if if it's worrisome to us, then what we do is we um, bring the child in right away. Uh, and it, if the clinic's not open, it can even be through the emergency room. And we start by getting blood tests that indicate if um, the parts of the blood are being made uh, properly, which can indicate leukemia or lymphoma, which um, indicate whether there are chemicals that can be created by the tumor. Um, you can, uh, when cells are rapidly dividing, they can create more potassium or uric acid. We do x-rays to look for masses. And in our um, ED or in the hospital, in clinic, we can rapidly get CTs or ultrasounds done within hours. And then we can, our goal is to make the right diagnosis and determination as soon as possible. And for social reasons, unlike adults, we often even admit patients, um, not necessarily because they're so sick that they have to be admitted, but just to make the workup happen faster so that, so that everyone can get the answer right away and we can start working on a plan that will make the child better. And as I said, I really feel like my field is a field of hope 
and and an optimistic positive specialty because the vast majority of the time we have something really great that we can offer where we expect it to work and we expect the child to to come come through at the other end and be a long-term survivor. Yeah, that's so so great to hear because I think that much of the general public um when they hear the word cancer um, it doesn't really uh, strike a chord of hope. And when you think about cancer in kids, um, many people experience more heartbreak. Um, but we're going to talk about all of the treatments and, and the, the optimism that uh, is entailed with that uh, in a second. But before we get there, so you have a child who comes in um, who was seen by their their pediatrician and it was felt that things just weren't kind of right and they you got some blood work and some scans and so on. In the adult population, usually the next step is a biopsy, um, so to try to make a definitive diagnosis. Is it the same way in kids? It It is. Um, uh, the most common childhood cancers are leukemia lymphomas. So the best place to do a biopsy is in the bone marrow, which is inside the bones is where we make our blood. And the most accessible site is the back of the hip because it's close to the surface of the skin. And that's an outpatient procedure that we can do with sedation from our uh, sedation colleagues that are available in the hospital and um, we can take a sample and look at it under the microscope. If it is a, a tumor of the brain or in another body part, then a biopsy is done. And that's a very important part. Um, we, we first do, do those scans and blood tests to say, is there, is it worth doing more? But if we are worried, then we'll go on and identify uh, the act, we'll actually make the diagnosis with the biopsy. And then the really exciting part about uh, being an oncologist in 2021 is that it's not just what the biopsy shows in terms of what the cancer type is. We also further analyze it for the genetics of the tumor, not the genetics that the child is born with, but in the tumor cells, because that can uh, inform us what is the best therapy to achieve cure? And sometimes it also tells us that we can use a certain drug that targets exactly um, what uh, that um, tumor cell is doing wrong or that it allows it to divide. And it can be what we call a directed or smart therapy. Yeah. So this whole concept of personalized medicine, you know, figuring out what genes are turned on and turned off in in a particular cancer and and allowing us to pick targeted therapies um, is something that that we've talked a lot about on this show, um, predominantly in adult cancers. But it's great to hear that that occurs in pediatric cancers as well. And again, I, I want to spend the second half of the show really talking about the personalized therapies and, and all of the optimism that goes into that. But before we get there, you know, one of the questions that I think many parents um, who may have a child with cancer may be asking is, 
why me? Why my child? What predisposed to this? It's not like um, lung cancer where you can say this child was smoking for X number of years or, um, you know, that, 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 that there may be a factor of obesity necessarily. So tell us a little bit more about, you know, the predisposing factors. Um, what, what causes these childhood cancers? Well, the simple answer is for most of them, we don't know. Uh, and only about five or six percent of them are due to familial cancer syndromes. This can be because the child is born with like a genetic um, uh, condition, like, for example, Down syndrome is a condition associated with an increased risk of leukemia or um, ataxia telangiectasia is another example. Or there can be um, uh, other like BRCA and other uh, syndromes that have been identified in adults, but they um, it's only accounting for a few. And in terms of environmental exposures, we've looked really hard, but we and there's been question about everything from cell phone use to living near power lines to um to what a mom ate during pregnancy. And we're, we have not really found any strong associations, uh, certainly um, very horrible tragedies like nuclear accidents have been associated with an increased risk of cancer in children. Um, and uh, for that reason, we really try to limit the radiation we give and the diagnostic tests to what's necessary, but they're not really at the doses we do in everyday life or live with in everyday life, they're not associated. So we, we don't know um, that that is an answer to be decided. And I think one of the interesting things is that we're trying, we're starting to appreciate there may be an association with environmental factors that play a role that combine maybe in a, in a multi-step way. So maybe a child inherits the ability to be more sensitive to an environmental exposure. So it's not a simple as association like smoking a lot, but, and then maybe some of those um, environmental exposures could be something like getting a certain type of infection. That's a common childhood infection, but uh, one child may be more um, uh, sensitive to that. And we get hints of that, for example, a certain kind of uh, lymphoma Burkitt's, is more common in Africa in areas where EBV or what causes mono is more common, but we're not really um, seeing as much here. So that that's an association, but these are all really at the stage of thought experiments and hypotheses, even despite a lot of research, we have not, we've not really come upon the answer. And so an important thing I tell families, and I say it honestly, is that there is nothing known that we you could have done um, to prevent this. Uh, there's nothing that you could have done uh, to, to screen for this because until it declares itself, there's no way to do, to there is no technique available, total body testing that, that could identify it earlier it um and and children are often like well until they're not well that's just a phenomenon and there's no test to catch it earlier so i think that's very a very important message for parents and family members to hear i think it's also important because sometimes cancer can be really stigmatizing and i think that it's important to know that 
these are really good parents that um, just had a very unlucky thing happen. So clearly, you didn't do anything wrong. We're going to pick up this whole conversation about cancer in children right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about pediatric cancers with my guest, Dr. Nina caden Lodick. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to eliminate cancer as a cause of death. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about pancreatic cancer, which represents about 3% of all cancers in the U.S. and about 7% of cancer deaths. Clinical trials are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers for the treatment of advanced stage and metastatic pancreatic cancer using chemotherapy and other novel therapies. Fulfirinox, a combination of five different chemotherapies, is the latest advance in the treatment of metastatic pancreatic cancer and research continues at centers around the world looking into targeted therapies and a recently discovered marker, HENT1. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Nina caden Lodick. We're discussing pediatric cancers, and, you know, this is always a topic that is heartbreaking. Um, whether you hear about it on the radio, you see commercials on TV, or you know somebody personally who whose child um, is going through cancer, it's always something where your heart really breaks. But Nina, right before the break, you were talking a little bit about genomics and personalized medicine, how um, in these kids, we can now do this genomic profiling, see what genes are turned on and turned off in particular cancers, um, and tailor our therapy. Um is, does that happen on all pediatric cancers, or do you need to be at a big academic uh, university to have that done? So I do think it helps to be at a big academic university to have it uh, be done uh, more widely. Uh, some of those tests have entered standard of care, but some of them are still... Uh, only uh, available in a research context, but are known to be quite valuable and helpful in guiding therapy. So uh, we're really pleased to be able to offer that at Yale, both uh, for all the different tumor types. I will say that we're learning a lot and it's more helpful for some tumor types than others, but we have learned in general that for pediatric cancers, that risk stratification is really important. And um, and the risk, the category a cancer is in or subcategory it's in can depend on which genes are turned on or off. And even other um, uh, patient attributes uh, like age or response to the first round of chemotherapy, uh, those help us know how to fine tune the treatment paths so that we can get to cure. So, so tell us a little bit more about how that all happens. So, you know, we've gotten to the point where the, the child has come in, seen the pediatrician, uh, gotten the scans and the blood work, had the biopsy. 
and, and let's suppose has um, has cancer. Um, so so tell us a little bit more. You had mentioned that you know the the survival rates are really good. Uh, many of these kids will have long term cures, and there there are a lot of exciting treatments um, coming down the pike. Tell us a little bit more about that, and and what what kind of gives you hope in this space. So to give you examples in leukemia, um, for leukemia cells, there are certain markers on the surface of the leukemia cells that are proteins that live on top of the tumor cells. And we can engage, we use drugs that engage the body's own immune system to attack those cells that have those proteins selectively. And that has two really important benefits. One of them is that it it kills the cancer cells, which which is very important. And the second one is that there's less collateral damage or unintended consequences to the healthy tissue because conventional chemotherapy just works on a lot of different cells, any rapidly dividing cells, but we have healthy cells in our body that divide rapidly. And so that's what can cause a lot of problems with, um, with, with the misery of, of, of going through some of the chemotherapy. So that's one example. We also have understood a little better how tumors trick the immune system so that um, they get the nutrients they need to divide quickly or that they um, they uh, keep the body's own uh, immune system from getting rid of them as because we have we have an immune system that polices our body all the time to get rid of abnormal cells. And somehow these tumor cells escape that system. So we also utilize that. And these drugs are available um, across tumor groups. We're discovering them uh, over, with our research. But it to know whether a tumor would be amenable to that, we do tests on the tumor. One, including the kind of proteins they make, and another is what the genetic makeup of the tumor cell is. Um, so those those are some examples. Um, uh, a new initiative that we have um, with Dr. Marks, another exciting one, is that in brain tumors, children with neurofibromatosis are one of the groups that have an increased risk of, of brain cancers called gliomas. And um, there is a certain kind of drug called a MEK inhibitor that is specifically good for... Um, for neuroblast neurofibromatosis patients, given the kind of genetic findings that are in in their in their tumor cells, and so you know, so so this is really great that there are targeted therapies that address particular proteins um, in particular cancers, or that um, help. Uh, the immune system to attack certain cancers that might be trying to sneak away uh, from from being attacked by the immune system. You know, a lot of this has to do with um, research, and and we talk a little bit in this show about clinical trials. You know, what what are your 
What is your advice when it comes to clinical trials for kids and cancer? So number one, are there clinical trials that are available to kids uh, who have cancer? And two, what is your advice to parents? You know, for many parents, they may be thinking, don't experiment on my child. Um, I'll, I'll take standard of care. Thank you very much, especially if standard of care is doing pretty well. On the other hand, um, you know, we often talk about clinical trials really offering patients kind of tomorrow's therapies today, and that many patients actually benefit from being in clinical trials. Talk a little bit about um, the particularities of clinical trials when it comes to pediatric patients with cancer. So I do think that's one of the reasons why children have been doing so well with cancer. That wasn't the case a generation ago, 30 years ago, the the cure rates were um, less than half what they are now. And um, if I had had a cancer as a child, most likely, and I'm a little older than that, the, that I would have likely succumbed. So things have changed very quickly. And um, pediatrics has really taken the lead in, in, organizing sites across the country together to coordinate and do clinical trials together. And we have a very high rate of clinical trial enrollment around 80%. So, and there have been analyses that show taking all comers, patients who are in clinical trials do better than those who do not enroll. In terms of experimentation, I would say that the well-being of the children in our care is the absolute top priority and there's no conflict of interest about personally benefiting of someone going on a clinical trial or not. Um, it's really to offer what's best and, and to decide what trials we open at Yale. And we have over 30 therapeutic pediatric trials now and more in the pipeline. Um, it, it goes through a very rigorous scientific review. We will not open a study that we don't feel can offer a meaningful benefit for children. So it won't even open here. We won't even have it to offer um, uh, before we've all reviewed it and reviewed it very rigorously. And then um, it's, of course, the parent's decision, but we try to lay out what are the potential benefits and what are the um, potential risks? And then to make that decision in a tough time when you don't want to have cancer at all, we don't want you to have it at all to have to make that decision. Um, for conditions in which there's outstanding outcomes and there's um, almost 100% cure rates or above 95% cure rates, we don't really have trials open because we don't feel like there's as much meaningful to offer and the standard of care is reasonable. But for most parents, you know, if you can increase a cure rate probability from 80% to 87% or 90%, that would be something to consider if the rest, if the risk benefit equation um, were, were uh, reasonable. And, and so that's why we always try to push that envelope because I'm happy about 85% all comers, but I, I don't think that's high enough for our children. That's, that's 15% of children who are not making it and it needs to be higher. It needs to be as close to a, as a hundred percent as, as, as we can get it. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, the the other question that I think many parents may have is, regardless of what therapy children undergo, um, whether it's a targeted therapy, whether it's standard of care, whether it is um, a novel therapy that's being offered on a clinical trial, many patients um, and many parents may ask, what are the long-term sequelae of cancer treatment in childhood? So in other words, if my child takes chemotherapy now, um, what does that do to their cognitive development? What does that do to their fertility down the line? What does that do to, you know, their, their propensity to pass along um, a risk to um, their future generations? What do you advise patients and parents when they are concerned about these long-term sequelae? So that's a very robust area of research. We now have the luxury and the pleasure of seeing and caring for long-term survivors who have lived many decades past their cancer experience. So we can quantify that risk. And that's what we do in the Heroes Clinic, which I direct, we care specifically for survivors after their treatment ended to keep them as healthy as possible and to manage any complications because unfortunately we have learned that the therapies that were needed to cure the cancer can sometimes cause downstream health effects. And you listed some of them. So for some therapies, they can result in infertility. We have a proactive fertility preservation program so that we try to harvest sperm and offer egg harvest when we can and we manage and screen for problems to try to catch them before they happen. We're also doing a lot of research because we've learned that exercise and diet can make a meaningful difference in undoing the effects of the previous uh, cancer and radiation therapy. So I think that to stay healthy and to live the best life, there needs to be long-term fault to, to make sure that if there are problems, they're caught early. Um, and for cognitive problems, that may mean also screening people early so they get the best education intervention that they can to meet their full potential. Dr. Nina caden Lodick is the medical director of the HEROES program and an associate professor of pediatrics in hematology oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.